Thou still unravished bride of quietness, Thou foster child of silence and slow time, Sylvan historian, who canst thus express A flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape Of deities or mortals or of both, In Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore ye soft pipes play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit, ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal. Yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. Forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk this pious morn? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity, cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain, in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Hi, and welcome to episode 98 of the Christian Humanist Podcast, the end of our trilogy on British Romantic Poetry. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in the snow-laden St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, Joining me today, as usual, is Nathan Gilmore, who is an assistant professor of English at Franklin Springs College in... No, Emanuel College in the non-snow-laden Franklin Springs, Georgia. Am I right about that? Indeed, although it did, in fact, snow. Uh, trying to think, what was it? Friday morning, Saturday morning, there were there was much chatter online about the fact that it snowed in Franklin Springs. It did not snow in Statham, which is where I'm recording today. All right. Also joining us is the probably still under snow... David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Is the snow melted yet, David? Uh, the, uh, the the big grassy area in front of the, the main building is clear, but there's still those, uh, those unlovely clumps of asphalt-stained snow at the edges of, of parking lots. You, you know the, what the, those are like. The snow mountain, yeah, they'll be there until, you know, it's June. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, there's one by the Walmart that I'm pretty sure you could ski down. Yeah. But other than that, pretty much clear. 
Yeah, when I lived in Omaha, I saw those, and it was like it'd be like seventy five degrees outside, and they'd still be there. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they're packed so tight. <laughs> Great place to hide a body, I think. On that. Thanks note, for the tip. <laughs> after our glut last week, we don't actually have any new listener feedback. Of course, we haven't published a show since we recorded last time, so I wouldn't have expected to. So right. that means we can get right into our topic, which is John Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. We read it at the beginning as we've read the two poems preceding it, so let's just dive right into the discussion. Uh, we'll begin by looking at the poems that sit around Ode on a Grecian Urn in Keats' corpus. It is one of six odes that he wrote in 1819. It is probably the most famous of them, although the others are, you know, notable pieces of British poetry. Nathan, what can you tell us about how Grecian Urn fits in with the other odes of 1819? Well, from what we know from Keats's letters, uh, he is in the process in 1819 of trying to experiment with the sonnet form. Uh, it's one of those things where uh, as that sort of modern romantic spirit, he says, all right, you know, this this form that's been with us, you know, since Sydney, arguably, probably Petrarch before that, uh, seems to have its shortcomings. Uh, so he is basically trying to experiment with the meter, with the number of lines, with the rhyme scheme, with those sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, all, all six of these, as you said, I mean, are some of his best known. I actually know Ode on Melancholy and Ode to a Nightingale better than I know this one. Uh, but all six of them, the other three that I haven't mentioned yet, are Ode to Indolence, Ode to Psyche, and uh, and to Autumn. Uh, all of them represent, like I said, an experimentation with form. And they also are partaking in what I would call a lyric tradition. They are all, uh, I mean, for like, like I said, I mean, lyric. And I, I don't know where I was going with that when I started that sentence. But, uh, you know, they are not attempting to be narrative poems. They're not attempting to uh, do any sort of metaphysical trickery, although that term wouldn't come into fashion for another century. Uh, they are all meditations on inner states. Um, and, and Michael, I, you know, I, I'll admit when you, when you asked me this broad a question, I didn't know exactly what high points you were shooting for. So is there anything you would add to that? No, I just, uh, I, I wanted to see what you'd pull out of them. Um, it, it's interesting to me that those odes all do get clumped together. They're often called the great odes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have anything in particular in mind. David, did All you right. want to add anything? Do you know the other poems well? I know I've read them at some point, um, <laughs> but it's been, it's been such a long time, and I've certainly never thought of them alongside of one another. Um, you know, my 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 main encounters with Keats have been in, in that kind of, you know, slapdash. Here's a, here's a series of poems with the same guy's name on it, and uh, the idea that they would have, that there would be a coherent grouping of them in which they might it might be a useful context. Yeah, that that isn't how um, that is that, that's not how I've ever approached this. So I, I suspect but, um, they're grouped more by form than by anything else. They're all odes. They're all on these topics. Like you said, they're they're vaguely psychological. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, Michael, and, and really for all three episodes of this trilogy, I've come to realize that my own experiences with the Romantics, especially the British Romantics, have been in a sort of intro to poetry context mm-hmm. to where I'm paying a lot more attention to how can I teach 
19-year-olds to think clearly about poetry than I am about where they fit in the literary history of England. And, you know, that's a, that's a shortcoming on my part. I'm not, I'm not saying that to boast. I'm saying it to confess a sin. But uh, th this series has definitely pointed up to me a place where I need to do some more reading. Mm. Yeah, it's it's do, not do one we, of my it's not one of my high high areas either, frankly. Do do we want to define Oprah real quick? Go ahead. I I mean I, I I don't have I don't have a definition right off the top of my uh, right off the top of my head. I know one when, when I see them. Yeah. <laughs> some uh some literary scholars we are, huh? Right, yeah. right. I mean, is it that it's like directly addressing something that ain't a person? Or just the direct address part of it. Well, I don't know. I know etymologically. I mean, it's simply a Greek word for song. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mean, you know, it is the, you know, I mean that that's the etymological root. Uh, but beyond that, as far as you know, uh, someone who actually teaches nineteenth-century British literature professionally, uh, I don't know how those people would define an ode as opposed to say a lyric more broadly. Or I, I have an answer. Ah, go ahead. Um, according to Wikipedia, in, in, <laughs> in English poetry, an ode is a lyrical stanza in praise of or dedicated to someone or something which captures the poet's interest or serves as an inspiration for the ode. So it is on a topic. Although that that description is so incredibly broad that I'm not sure it actually uh, solves it's the meaningful. problem. Right. <laughs> Na name me a poem that doesn't fit into that description. <laughs> Well, I, I don't. Maybe this is incredibly goofy, but um, I kind of I, I I remember getting through. It must have been like a literature midterm, and I was able to identify a lot the the opening lines of an ode because I remembered that all of the odes seemed to have uh, at some point the thing that they're talking about it addresses as oh something or other. <laughs> Except, so except remember, this one. So right? I remember the odes. Well, I mean, stanza five. Yeah, yeah. Oh, attic shape, and you get oh, mysterious priest. They do have a common rhyme scheme in English, which is a b a b c d e c d e, which is the rhyme scheme of this poem. So it's regular, okay. at least in that sense. And then you know, the ancient Greek ode has a much more structured form. You have the. Mm -hmm. is, I've never known how to pronounce this. Strophe and antistrophe. That's how I pronounce them. And then the epode. Right. So, but English English odes don't have that form. So, really, it seems like it's a pretty loose categorization, frankly. Mm -hmm. mm. All right. Well, let's move on to something even broader. <laughs> uh, Keats. I mean, he's he's part of our romantic poetry series, so he is obviously generally classed as a romantic, but Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats have so little in common, at least on the surface of them, that the through lines are thinner than we might have imagined them to be. David, what seems particularly large or romantic to you about Grecian Urn, and what connections, if any, do you see to the other poems we've read in this series? Hmm. Well... Uh, okay, big R romantics. What are the the kinds of things? If you read the introductory, ch you know, chapter at that beginning of that section in the Norton, ooh, um, romant big R romantics are interested in art and the production of art and thinking about thinking about that process. Um, also, the exp the experience 
of appreciating art, not just creating it, but also of appreciating it and thinking about um, what it's like to look at a beautiful thing and praise it. Um, one thing that that also connected to me, um, connected with me in, the, in this particular poem, um, was thinking to uh, a poem that's often seen as uh, sort of getting the ball rolling uh, for the British Romantics, um, which is Gray's Elegy. Uh, on Elegy on an English Churchyard, something like that. Um, title titles titles missing. I just know it as the as Gray's Elegy, late seventeen hundreds, um, in which the the speaker in the poem is standing in this this uh, this country graveyard, looking at the different gravestones and meditating on what kinds of lives the people that are in those graves might have led. All right. And perhaps what kinds of lives they might have led if they hadn't lived in the countryside, but instead led in a place where life had given them um, opportunities for wider influence. Um, and this kind of reminds me of that, except instead of looking at gravestones, it's looking at these artistic images of people and trying to imagine their histories and their relationships and, and things like that. Um, so imagine li rumination on imagined lives in the past, that, that, that seems like a big R romantic thing, maybe. Um, it also seems to be fascinated with the, with the idea of the pagan past as something that is more natural and more beautiful. And uh, we, uh, we mentioned Wordsworth's um, The World is Too Much with Us a couple of episodes ago um, as an example of that. And certainly um, I'd call Kublai Khan an example of, of a kind of wild pagan um, sublimity uh, as well. So maybe, maybe that's another kind of connection. Um, in terms of connections with odes, uh, with the Wordsworth uh, Intimations of Immortality Ode and Kublai Khan, um, you have, in each of those cases, you have a poet meditating on how he is um, removed from the direct experience of a kind of beauty. You know, maybe that's a stretch, but uh, in in each of those, you have uh, it. It seemed to me that the poet is feeling cut off from uh, what he'd like to uh, what he'd like to experience, and is and and that that cut offness, um, that severance from immediate contact, uh, is is part of what uh, makes the poem work. I mean, does that sound plausible, or am I just making stuff up? No, it does, and I, I, I like that. I like that explanation. I think it explains a good deal. And since one of the few things I know less than romantic poetry is eighteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth century poetry, I wonder if that is something different from, say, Alexander Pope. Um, mm. But I am not at all qualified to make that judgment, or either of you. No, not necessarily. I mean, the only pope I know uh, to any degree is Rape of the Lock, and it's too snarky to be ruminative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that wouldn't right. be a fair comparison. Right. I mean, the the only thing I'd add, David, and I, I think your explanation is a fine explanation, uh, is that you know this idea that the poem is a gesture towards that transcendent reality. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one of those things where, I'd, and you know, it, it reminds me. Uh, since we're going into other centuries here, 
with impunity. Uh, it reminds me of Milton's uh, Allegro and Penseroso. You know, it's it's the oh, yeah. it's the observation of phenomena, not participation in phenomena, uh, that is important here. So I mean, you know, there's there's obviously in this context no way in which the poet can be a part of the scene, and yet he is you know paying very close attention to the details of what is occurring in the scene. And you're right, David. I mean, exactly the the result of that meditation is the, is the alienation from the scene itself. It's the sense that there is something good going on there to which I do not have access. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I wondered whether I was just in uh, taking comprehensive exams mode and was <laughs> making stuff See? up because that's what I did. <laughs> well, I was going to say seeing coherences where they are not, but making stuff up works too. Oh, okay, okay. Well, <laughs> we're, we're all making stuff up. This is none yeah. of our areas, which our listeners should keep in mind. <laughs> right, right. Spretsatura. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't hit Spretsatura yet this week, guys. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> we're too we're too meta today to uh, to be Spretsaturic. That's right. Uh, sure. Well, Nathan, you made me talk about <laughs> Plato when we read Wordsworth, so I'm going to return the favor. The urn's origin in Greece seems important to me, not just because it provides mm-hmm. a distinctive visual style that we talked about a few weeks ago, but also because Keats seems to be drawing on some rather typically Greek philosophical ideas in his description. Am I way off? I mean, you know Plato better than I do. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, you know, it, it's sad, you know, I my dissertation was in English Lit, but I can talk about Plato with far more fluency than I can about Keats. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, the Greek setting here is is of great interest. Uh, a few things that are going on here that are very platonic, and I mean, this is an eminently platonic poem, but it is an inverted Platonism, which I love. Uh, because with Plato, of course, as we talked about on that uh, Plato's Aesthetics episode, uh, for Plato, the representative artwork is at two removes from reality. So in other words, the form of the thing is the ultimate reality. Uh, the thing as we experience it in the world of the living, breathing human being is at one remove, and then the representation is at two removes. What Keats does is he inverts that and says, actually, what's going on is because the forms on this Grecian urn are immutable, effectively. Now, of course, I mean, if we are geologists, we can say that, you know, in a brief geological moment, the urn will be gone just as we are. But in human terms, it's going to outlast any of us. All right. So in this poem, uh, the eternal is the representation while the person beholding the representation is actually at one remove from what gets beheld or beholden. I'm never sure about those past perfects. Uh, but <laughs> a couple other things that are going on here. Uh, the idea that the love of the lover uh, is always going to be deferred is something that's definitely reminiscent of Plato's Phaedrus. The idea that the search for transcendent truth comes with the suspension of the bodily eros uh and also i mean you've got the brief phrases and you know they're they are very brief allusions but in a poem this brief I, I think they've got to mean something uh the mad pursuit uh and the wild ecstasy uh again you know it, it conjures up the discussion in the phaedrus about the divine madness of the 
prophet and the poet and such. So what we've got here are the platonic forms of trees because they never lose their leaves, the pl platonic form of a town uh, that never falls into tyranny, the platonic form of desire, which is never uh, consummated and therefore never dissipates. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thoroughgoing platonic poem that culminates, of course, with beauty is truth, something that you could pull straight out of the Gorgias, the Phaedrus, the Republic, the Symposium. Uh, like I said, thoroughgoing Platonist poem. David, am I missing anything there? That's that all sounds plausible to me. I mean, uh, it 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 seems as if uh, it seems as if I've just lost my train of thought. So we'll just leave it at that. Sounds good to me. <laughs> You've also got this pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. That sounds oddly platonic to me as well. That, oh, yeah, I, that somehow I, art speaks directly to your soul rather than speaking to right. your senses. And also there actually is a discussion in the Republic about the true music, which does not use sound to engage its harmonies. So yeah, you're right, Michael. I left that one out. Thank you for picking that up for me. You you pulled far more Platonism out of the poem than I saw it, and I was just thinking of <laughs> of that um, of that stanza, and you went all over. So good for you. Well, like like I said, I mean, it, it's a a shame on my part that I can speak far more fluently about Plato than I can about English Romantic literature, being an English professor and all. But there you have it. <laughs> all right. Well. uh David, I'm going to show off my literary criticism chops. Here's a, a word I learned in uh, when I took the class when I was an undergrad. Uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn is one of the more famous examples of a literary technique called ekphrasis, which is the describing in words of a work of visual art, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. How does Keats use this technique, and what larger point is he trying to make with it? Ooh. Well, yeah, it it is um, it is a pretty well recognized uh, genre. Um, of, uh, the Greeks knew of it. Um, Homer does it. Virgil does it. Um, and it's all all through the Middle Ages. There's one of my favorite bits of uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is uh, in the Knight's Tale. There's these two long descriptions of the artwork inside the temples of Mars and of Venus. And you can you can spend a lot of fruitful time just sort of camping out and looking at the pictures of the walls in those temples and getting an idea of uh, how Chaucer wants you to see those those two gods as as influences on uh, on human action. Um, so so Keats is Keats is doing something that uh, I think Reader, good readers probably would have recognized. Um, now, one interesting thing is that this particular urn, um, in spite of the fact that uh, even in Keats, uh, even just after Keats' own day, um, and then on into uh, onto the twentieth century, people tried to uh, tried to find this urn, um, and at various times it was identified with a bunch of different Greek vases and various kinds of collections. Um, the British Museum, some private collections. Um, the problem is that none of them is actually an exact match for what he describes. So, um, 
scholars have pretty much uh, have pretty much decided that that uh, Keats urn doesn't exist. Um, he he made it up out of out of pieces of other things that he'd seen, inspired by other things that he'd seen. So while this is ekphrasis, ekphrasis, this is um, this is a description of uh, a verbal description of pictorial art that doesn't exist right. in any way except in the verbal description. Uh, huh? When Dan Brown's next novel comes out, it'll set all that straight. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the 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 the, 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 the <laughs> Yeah. Anywho's that that's not unusual either, um, because you know when Homer describes the shield of Achilles, when uh, Virgil describes um, you know the, the the various pieces of artwork that Aeneas is looking at while he's in uh, Carthage, I believe, um, they're they're making up things that they haven't seen. Uh, ditto Chaucer, right? You know Chaucer is not sitting in the middle of the story of Palamon and Archite. Um, looking at the actual temples of Venus and Mars, he's making that up too. So it's not unusual that um, the the uh, an exercise in ekphrasis would be practiced on some, something that has no um, no actual material correspondent. Um, however, it does make the poem very interesting, right? Because you know, if you're going to take this as some kind of meditation on um, if you take this as a meditation on what visual art can do to inspire you or teach you about truth and beauty and stuff like that, and I don't want to short-circuit that conversation, so I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> but if, if, if you're going to treat it that way, you also have to deal with the fact that this poem is not written while looking at any actual particular piece of art. <laughs> um, the only access that we're ever going to get to this urn is through this poem. Um Keats had it in his imagination, and he's cut us off from it in that way. Um, we can't go back to it and write our own poem. We can only get to it through his. And I'm not entirely sure what to what what to make of that. Um, I mean, where where would you guys take that? Well, like you said, I mean, it's a long tradition. I mean, you know, just to add a couple examples to what you were saying. I mean, there's a long uh ekphrasis in Shakespeare's Rape of Lucrece where you know they mm, are yeah. meditating on a tapestry of Troy uh so I mean I you know it, it's one of those things where and you know I'm trying to think of any sort of analogs going on but I mean the um, I I wonder I mean if Keats is sort of tweaking the nose of his contemporaries you know in a time that is sort of obsessed with you know getting back to the old roots of you know ethnic and classical antiquity uh, I, I don't know maybe maybe i'm putting too much into it but you know it, it's definitely 1819 is definitely a moment when people are wildly wildly interested in antiquities and mm -hmm. i wonder if you know the fact that he's writing this poem does he know that people are going to be obsessed with finding the actual urn? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, setting them off on a on a wild goose chase. I don't know. I, I like I like that possibility. 
Michael, am I, <laughs> am I making this too goofy? No, I was just thinking about the Rosetta Stone, which must have mm. been... When, when, what year is the Rosetta Stone? Oh, goodness. It's right around in there, because it was found... I mean, they found it when Napoleon invaded Egypt, So, yeah. and this and this is right around that time. Because I know, I know the finding of that Rosetta Stone sparks this entrance in uh, ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't know how germane that is to the topic. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the way he defers to the urn in the first stanza, right? He says, "Yeah." He says, "You." He's talking to the urn. Who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme? So he's saying that the visual art is the supreme art form, <laughs> and he talks mm-hmm. about how it provides immortality. But even if it is a real urn, in fact, the poem is going to outlast the urn because the, mm-hmm. the, the poem is in some ways immaterial. Right, right. And that the urn doesn't even exist makes it even more complicated. And by the way, I've, I've just got to tip my hat. I've, I've been holding back up to this point. But uh, do you guys remember the waste paper basket oh, outside the English department at University of Georgia? <laughs> but that yeah. said, thou still unravished bride of quietude. Oh, did it really? Because it's quoting Faulkner, yeah. who misquotes this, and I think it's Flags in the Dust. Oh, okay, okay. Isn't it, wasn't that an ashtray? Yeah, yeah. It well, was, I mean, most of, a... the, most of the wastebaskets outside the English department serve double duty. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, the still unravished Bride of Quietude contained an awful lot of cigarette butts. <laughs> Which seems appropriate somehow. <laughs> what? I mean, do you guys see connection between this poem and the fact that an awful lot of Keats' poems are written about him apparently thinking about stuff that he's looked at or read? Um, he's got that, that sonnet on first looking at Chapman's Homer. He wrote one about looking at the Elgin marbles. He's got a couple about Shakespeare. Um, you know, he, it's, it seems as if Keats just in general liked to experience art whatever whatever sort it was and then write a poem about it mm-hmm. um i mean it, and i and i actually kind of love that because he's not he's not out in the woods in the meadows he's he's reading and he's wandering through galleries right right <laughs> so that, that, that and then yet, so yet the, another division between him and wordsworth and coleridge mm-hmm. yeah yeah but if if you look at his po as a, at his poetry overall, this is a very Keatsy kind of thing to do. Um, to be be describing what he appreciates, though in this case he's taking it one step further and creating an artifact that he never actually saw. <laughs> well, I mean, we should. I'm sure he didn't create it out of whole cloth. I'm sure it's just a combination. Of oh a, yeah. Of a bunch of different ones he saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he there's there's one famous sketch by Keats of a Greek of a Greek vase of the type that he's describing, but but that one doesn't have all of the features that he attributes to this one. Right, so we know that right. he saw some. Just um, so he's creating some kind of gestalt urn. <laughs> I, I still say the Illuminati have the urn. I, you know, he's he's created a Platonic ideal of the Greek urn, if we want to take it back to Plato. Uh, yeah, yeah. Huh. It somehow combines them all. It has the essence Wait. of the uh, historical urn. 
wait, he's he's created a platonic ideal of representational art. Did he just turn Platonism inside out? Most of the romantics do, you know. They all love Plato, but Plato hates them. (laughs) (laughs) They're the wannabe Plato groupies. (laughs) Yeah. And he's he's uh he's a dismissive uh washed up rock star. <laughs> Me fans are bloody pigs. Oh and see I, I was thinking much more local. I'm thinking about the crowd of hipsters that sort of follows uh, Michael Stipe around Athens. My fans are bloody pigs. <laughs> <laughs> what a dillweed awesome. that guy is, huh? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know. Anyway, uh, the most famous line of the poem is that final couplet, beauty is truth and truth beauty, that is all you, you know on earth and all you need to know. Um, maybe it's just because my literary criticism class just read the decadence, but I can't help but connect that dictum to Wilde's notion of art for art's sake. Uh, what do you think about that, Nathan? Yeah, I think that's definitely one direction you could take that. I mean, the... Uh, and I, I think of them as the uh, aestheticist rather than the decadence, but I've, I've seen that term too, uh, tended to disdain any attempts to make uh, really morality was their main concern, but also politics and also any sort of social statement out of art. You know, the, the form, the beauty of the thing, the sort of appreciation detached from the concerns of other human activities was what they were after. And this is certainly a, a pair of lines that you could take that direction. You know, I mean, the in the midst of other woe to, than ours, um, this urn remains a friend, right? So in other words, uh, it doesn't necessarily alleviate the woe. It doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, help you to confront the injustices that cause the woe. Uh, but it remains a friend. And what it tells you in its friendly mode is that beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Uh, so that's definitely a line that you could take on it. Now, I because I have not read Oscar Wilde recently, Michael, but I have read some Christian theology that's very interested in the ethical character of aesthetics, and I'm thinking David Bentley Hart, I'm thinking John Milbank. Uh, I think that you could also take this in a very different direction and say, you know, that beauty is truth uh, could be something along the lines of a political statement in its own right. Uh, in other words, you know, precisely the best thing that art can do for us is to remind us that the things as we see them uh, in their contingency, in their fleetingness, in their, uh, I mean, in their will to power. I've been reading Nietzsche lately. Sorry, I couldn't help but get that one in there. Uh, are ultimately secondary realities, derivative realities, fallen realities. And that art, uh, if we contemplate it as Keats teaches us to contemplate it here, uh, reminds us that there are eternal things that stand over against the world as we apprehend it. So it's one of those things when, when you pose that question, Michael, I thought, oh, yeah, I guess you could read it alongside Oscar Wilde. Uh, because I've been reading John Milbank and David Bentley Hart, I was reading it alongside them instead. So uh, I tend to take that final couplet in a very different kind of direction. David, which one recommends itself to you? Oof. 
I've wrestled with that final couplet for like ever, and I, <laughs> I haven't stopped wrestling with it. Um, the the only the, and I I keep I keep trying to go back to the rest of the poem to address that, mm-hmm. um, because I, I keep connecting it with the idea that th- throughout the whole poem, you've got. You know, you, you've got a musician playing songs that you can't hear, yet somehow are sweeter because you can't hear them. Mm-hmm. You know, so in that case, you're not actually hearing anything. There isn't there isn't that kind of factual sort of truth. Uh-huh. But instead, um, a suggested beauty, which is truer. I, 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 I again, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. And and the weird thing, um, the weird thing about talking about the, the art pointing, the art being um, eternal is that it's not quite. You know, the silent form teases us out of teases us out of thought as doth eternity, but it's not exactly eternity. It's something a little bit closer to the literary present tense. Right, right. You know, where because of the static nature of the. Re- representational art this 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 moment is frozen um you know and frozen for frozen forever as it is i mean obviously the vase isn't going to last forever at some point some some sap's going to knock it over (laughs) you know but in the meantime the contemplation of it forces us to think about um a kind of existence that is atemporal not necessarily in a way that's exactly like eternity, but something that 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 can that can get us to thinking about the kind of atemporality that eternity could be. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I still haven't answered that whole "beauty is truth, truth is beauty" thing. I yeah, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just going to keep dithering unless you stop me. Stop me from dithering. <laughs> Michael. Michael, have you have you taken a run at this? I mean, I wonder if both aren't aren't implied by the reversal of the statement. Okay, Be- beauty is truth sounds like what you're proposing from Milbank and Hart, and truth beauty sounds closer to what Wilde is proposing that art is for art's sake only, and the only truth worth valuing is beauty itself. Truth's not beautiful. Truth is beauty. I I, mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder if he doesn't mean to suggest both of them. Hmm. That line's always bothered me because it is. Isn't it obvious that beauty is not truth and truth is not beauty? <laughs> <laughs> right. They're made up of different letters. <laughs> I mean, isn't it obvious that there are unbeautiful truths and there are beautiful things that aren't true? Well, in a platonic sense, no. Hmm. Yeah. In, in no. other words, there might be things, you know, to go back to the Gorgias, and again, I'm, I'm going Plato because that's what I do. Uh, you know, I mean, there are things that are pleasing to the untutored appetites, right? Uh, to the, you know, the lower rungs of Eros if you're going with the symposium. Uh, but that, that that are not beautiful in a way that is entirely beautiful or is 
as beautiful as is possible. Uh, so, I mean, you know, to, to sort of take the Platonism in an Augustinian direction, you know, I mean, there are things which are to be used rather than enjoyed, uh, but when we, you know, take them as objects of enjoyment, uh, you know, we turn them into falsehoods. So, I mean, I, yeah, and, you know, may, maybe I'm stretching that, Michael, and, you know, I realize that there's a different set of conventions there at play when we talk about ugly truths. Uh, I realize that's not what you're talking about, and I'm utterly cheating here. Uh, but, you know, I'm just trying to think, I mean, inside the terms of the poem, uh, it, it seems that, you know, I mean, if you are going to take this urn as a sort of sage, right, as someone who is a wise friend, then that's the sort of thing that the urn would be talking about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, and, you know, I, again, I'm trying to think of, you know, well, and I mean, I'm, 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 what I'm doing is using up the ammo that I was going to have for the wrap-up question, so I better quit before I'm completely out of things to say. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move into that wrap-up question. Though the, the, the I do want to say one thing. All of this is assuming that this isn't, you know, a 24-year-old poet having found an awesome line and running with it. Well, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, can't we go both at- <laughs> Can't we go both and with it, though, David? I mean, can't, oh, can't, we, can't we keep our biographical criticism in our left hand and the new criticism in the right? I, you know. Sure, 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 sure we can. You know, sure can. And, I, and I realize I just became Walt Whitman. I'm going to contain within myself multitudes, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as, as long as you remember that the same guy that wrote Beauty is Truth and Truth Beauty, that is all you need to know on Earth and all you know on Earth and all you need to know is the same guy that wrote More Happy Love, More Happy, Happy Love. Yeah. <laughs> but for, so, for, that matter, for that matter, he also wrote La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which is a poem in which beauty is definitely not truth. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Hmm. Fair enough. Well, our final question throughout this triptych has been theological in nature, so let's once again take the poem as our text and preach for a few minutes. David, you first. What lessons do you find here in Ode on a Grecian Urn? Oof. Um, I guess this is a lesson that um, this this poem teaches, but I'm go- I'm 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 going to cheat a wee bit and put this, you know, as I did before in the context of other poems in which Keats also reflects on the experience of having read a book or a poem or um, looked carefully at a piece of art. Um, I think it's uh, that kind of um, contemplation of the experience of taking in something that is artfully beautiful um, is a healthy discipline, you know, and I'm going to make the theological move um, simply by saying uh, there, you know, while, while uh, a lot of times it seems to be the habit of, of Christian folks reading scriptures to, you know, to jump straight to applications or to, you know, to kind of root through the text to, to try to isolate the things that must be believed and must be done. Um there's also a beauty in the text. 
um, a beauty in the narratives, a beauty in the poetry. Um, there, there's, there's beauty in it, and I, I think we could benefit from, you know, slowing down and having a kind of Keatsian meditation on, on that side of it too. Um, you know, and I think that 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 would be, you know, at least as fruitful to us as. You know, root, root, rooting through a beautiful psalm, trying to find out how it applies. Um, you know, maybe that application that you need to be looking for is the kind of uh, the kind of uh, contemplation that you could get if you read it the way. You know, if you read the the psalm the way Keats reads an urn. So, yeah, that that's 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 my stab. Bit of a stretch, but. Well, Nathan? I'm going to take it in a similar direction and say that this is a supreme example of close attention to and exegesis of details. And one of the things that I was thinking of when I I was trying to frame how I was going to answer this question is the fact that uh, when we travel or even when we stay in town, uh, there are moments, visual impressions, uh, think about crowds on a street, Think about scenes in a park. Uh, think about those sights that you see and remember later. Uh, the human beings that are involved in those scenes move on after that moment, uh, and they live human lives and they die human deaths. Uh, but for you, the observer, for the one who has seen, they remain an image. And I have to think that you know that that faculty that we have to remember a sight is something that Keats is celebrating here in a way that sometimes we're inclined to ignore since we live in an age of photography. Uh, And, you know, this poem is just a reminder to me that uh, although I enjoy photographs, certainly I enjoy, uh, you know, snapshots as much as I enjoy professional portraits, there's also something to be said for the power of the memory to call forth an image and the power of the imagination to read into the details of that image and to enjoy it in ways that simply flipping through 300 photographs can't do. Uh, The other thing I would say is, you know, uh, that can't be the sum total of the way that we interact with the world. Uh, And, you know, probably our listeners are smart enough to know that can't be the sum total of it just as a Grecian urn can't be the sum total of our interaction with reality. Uh, But it's certainly one facet of that gem that we can celebrate, and I think that we should. Michael, take Mm. us home. Uh, I just want to point out the mixed media quality of this poem, although the poem is only in one medium. It makes reference to at least three others, sculpture, painting, and music. And and the poem becomes more powerful for its verbal attempt to merge these, these four art forms. I would say Hmm. that this is something that Protestant Christianity has traditionally not been great at, Mm -hmm. Um, bringing in all the senses, all the art forms together into into one um, master form, and and that that may be a, a lesson we can learn from this poem. Certainly, I don't think we should take away from this that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Just, just couldn't let that go, could you? No. Uh, well, that uh, that about sums up our triptych on romantic poetry, British romantic poetry. If you have something you think you, we left out, 
or uh, something we said wrong, by all means, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Nathan, what's on the slate for next week? Well, next week I'm going to try to get Michael's head to explode. We're going to talk about online education. Oh, yeah. oh you, you're just the worst. And I know the next time Grubbs goes, we're going to do Poe, just so, just so I really hate uh, the next two weeks. <laughs> well, no, 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 because after this one will be episode 100. We've got to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to have some sort of super episode? Yeah, I, I don't think episode 100 needs to be spent just in making Michael miserable with Poe. That, that... <laughs> In fact, find that, other that things to make me mean. miserable with at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's not to jump the gun on episode 100 yet. That's kind of a biggie. So next week we're going to do online education, then we'll figure out what we're going to do for our our emergence into triple digits. Although, as our listeners know well enough, we've probably got 120 files on the XML feed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. The greatest lost track of all time. The late greats turpentine.